Our great God and Father in heaven, we're thankful that we can meet together this evening to sing your word back to you, O God, and to confess in song the faith that you have revealed to the world and given to your people by grace. We are thankful, O Father, for the sending of your Son, Jesus, our Savior and King, for the sending of your Holy Spirit, and for your revealed word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We are thankful for the pardon of our sins and for the imputation of Christ's righteousness, that when you look upon us, O Father, you see not our sinfulness and wickedness, but rather the blessed obedience of your Son. We're thankful that you have adopted us as your children, O God, and given us an inheritance in Christ that is everlasting. We're thankful for the sanctification that we have received, that we have been set apart as your own special people, not because of anything that we have done or anything that we deserve in ourselves, Lord, but rather because of your goodness and grace. We are thankful for the ongoing work of sanctification and the way in which you conform us more and more in the likeness and image of your Son. And we are thankful for the hope of glory, Christ within us securing that promise, O God. And we pray that it would see its fulfillment in our lives. We're thankful, O God, for the prayers that have been answered and for the strength that you have given to your saints in various trials. We are grateful, O God, that you are gracious and merciful, sovereign over every experience of our lives, and that you use the circumstances of our lives, even those that are difficult and unpleasant for us. Nevertheless, you use them for your glory and for the greater good of our souls. And we do pray, O God, for our brothers and sisters who are in need, for those who are enduring seasons of illness, going through uh, uh, treatments and chronic pain, Uh, those who are uncertain about the future, O Lord, and fearful of what it might hold, we pray that in each case you would bless your people to give comfort and healing according to your goodwill and to draw them closer to yourself through that season. Bless our study tonight, O God. We pray that we would be a people who love your law, who know it to be a blessing to our souls, and yet a people who see your law rightly in relation to the glorious gospel of your Son. We pray, O God, that you would continue to strengthen us, stretch our minds, improve our understanding, and help us as we seek to be obedient to your will always by faith in your Son and out of gratitude for his work on our behalf. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we have a new handout tonight. Hopefully you picked up one of those. This is part two of the outline of theonomic ethics that we began last week, but it's actually the third class in this short series on Christian ethics. We started two weeks ago with a discussion of the Euthyphro dilemma, and that was intended to be preparatory in helping us understand some fundamental things about where goodness comes from, where where we derive our understanding of justice and righteousness of truth and goodness. And then last week we began working through a 12-point summary put together by Dr. Greg Bonson, a minister in the OPC a number of years ago, a 12-point summary of theonomic ethics. Now, we said last week that theonomy is a term that is loaded with meaning and controversy. To say that you are a theonomist is, is <laughs> in many circles, an awful thing, right? It's like admitting to be a Calvinist. People immediately assume that they know what you believe, and what they assume is the very worst that you could possibly believe. 
What I want to do tonight and uh, begin last week and continue next week, Lord willing, is try to set before you a very basic understanding of a theonomic approach to ethics. This is not to say this is uh, all that might be said about theonomy. It's not necessarily everything that's ever been associated with that term. It's not to make a commitment to a particular person or a particular school of thought or even a particular application of some of these categories, but to lay out in a basic sense, a broad sense, why I believe and why I think we all should believe that any Christian who takes the authority of God seriously and the authority of his word seriously should be at some level, to some extent, theonomic in their thinking. Theonomy is from two, the combination of two Greek words, theos and nomos, which are God and law. So we're talking about the law of God, the rule of God, as opposed to being autonomous, self-ruled, self-governed. We are recognizing that God is the one who ultimately establishes the rules that humanity is uh, called to observe. I want to start with two passages, both of which are uh, referred to, cited in your notes. And again, you've got a lot of material on the handout, many proof texts and passages of Scripture. I'm not going to read tonight, but I would encourage you to read on your own time. But two of them that I want to start with, the first in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the second in Matthew chapter 5. The first one from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. And then the second from Matthew chapter 5, some of Jesus' introductory comments in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Let's start with 1 Timothy chapter 1. Beginning at verse 8, the Word of God says this, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, For the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Now I want to unpack that just a little bit. So hold your place there. We're going to come right back to it. But let's go ahead and read our other passage from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, I'll be reading verses 17 to 20. This is the word of Christ from his own mouth speaking to his disciples. And this is what he says. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven." For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1 for a moment. I want to talk just very briefly about both of these passages and then we'll move forward in the material that's on your handout. First of all, notice that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the law is good. 
So says the apostle who calls the law a ministry of condemnation and death. We have it on good authority that law is bad and gospel is good. Except that maybe we have misunderstood Paul at certain points in his description of the law. He says the law is good. Just as in Romans chapter 7 verse 12, he says we know that the law is holy and righteous and good. The problem has never been God's law. There is no defect in God's law. There is no injustice in God's law. If you're reading the Old Testament law and you are saying here are ways in which the law falls short of a truly moral and just society, then you are misunderstanding reality. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with our sense of righteousness, justice, and fairness. The law is good. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. But if you use it unlawfully, then it becomes a ministry of condemnation. It can serve as an instrument of death. If you look to the law for your justification, for example, well, it's only going to bring condemnation. If you rest in your obedience to the law as if it were some merit that you can claim before God or some means by which you can set yourself up over and above the rest of humanity, then you're misusing the law and it will serve to damn you rather than to delight you. But Paul says if you use the law correctly, if you use it lawfully, the law is a blessing. The law is not given to condemn God's people. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not the purpose that the law serves. It can't save you and it can't condemn you if you are in Christ. Who is the law for? The law is not made for a righteous person. Now here's the irony of this passage. In much of the controversy about theonomy and debates even within the Reformed community about the the relationship of law and gospel, when we think about the law either as solely a ministry of condemnation, an instrument to condemn, convict and condemn the sinner and drive him to Christ, beyond which the law does not have a great deal of usefulness, or we think about the law only in relation to the church, as if the law is for God's people as a rule of life, a rule of faith, a a, a means of gratitude, but it is for the church, it's for the kingdom of God and not for the nations. Paul says the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the unrighteous. And then he enumerates who those people are. Do they sound like your typical members of the local church? I mean, if they are, then then they're either repentant or they're under church discipline. No, he's describing people who are not penitent who are convicted, who are condemned by the law. They are under the authority of the law. The outsider, this passage says that the outsider is under the authority of God's law. So whether you refer to that as a common kingdom, whether you think about that in terms of some other administration of Christ's authority than the church herself lies under, Paul's very clear, the law has authority over all those outside the church. He enumerates all of these, the lawless and insubordinate, and so on and so forth. And he says in verse 10, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, that is sound teaching. Well, what kind of sound teaching do you have in mind, Paul? Are you thinking about the teaching of the Old Testament? Well, that's the law he's referring to, but he actually relates it to the gospel. Verse 11, Contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. He says that the law 
establishes the standard and the law condemns anyone who deviates from that standard and that that message is consistent with the gospel that he was commissioned by Christ to preach. In other words, there is a distinction between law and gospel, but it's the same distinction that you see between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. It's a distinction. It's not a divorce. It's not a separation. They are not at enmity with one another in most passages in the Bible. Now, can you find passages where they are? Of course there are. There are a minority of texts where you can see the, uh, the pitting of law and gospel against one another, but if you will pay attention to the context, you will understand why they are standing in antithesis against one another. You are either looking to the law for your justification or you are looking to Jesus. You are either looking to the law for your salvation or you are looking to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But in fact, Paul says this law that condemns the ungodly is perfectly consistent with the gospel that he was given to preach to the nations. And so that relationship of law and gospel is very important for us to understand that there is some some sense in which the nations are still under the law of God and and oh, by the way, it's it's the law that tells us what, what lawlessness is what insubordination is, what ungodliness is, what unholiness is. Uh, Lawless, ungodly, unholy, profane, those are cultic terms. Do you understand what that means? Cultic refers to the the worshiping community, right? This is is associated with religion, in other words. These are first-table violations. We think, well, it's only the social ramifications of God's law that apply to the nations. That's not what Paul thought. He thought that the law condemned those who were lawless and subordinate, ungodly, unholy, and profane, as well as those who were murderers and fornicators and sodomites and so on and so forth. And he, be, he viewed that operation of the law, that application of the law, as consistent with the gospel of Jesus. Now let's go over to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, in introducing the Sermon on the Mount, makes it very clear that his purpose in coming was not to destroy the law or the prophets. Now, he's using a term here that refers to the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, the law, the writings, and the prophets were the three parts of that Bible that the Jews had and that the early Christians believed and read and studied. And if you wanted to refer to the whole thing from Genesis to Malachi, we would say, although their books were in a different order, you would say the law and the prophets. And Jesus says, I did not come to destroy that. I came to fulfill that, by which many people take him to mean destroy. (laughs) Have you noticed that? I did not come to destroy the law of the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Lord, what do you mean? I came to nullify them by, by satisfying all of their expectations and requirements and then setting them aside so that they no longer have any binding authority. So what, what you're saying is you basically came to destroy their authority. But Jesus says, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. But what does fulfill mean? Well, Jesus is fully obedient to the law. He satisfies and fulfills, completes all of the prophecies, all of the typological expectation of the Old Testament. All of it is aimed at Jesus. He fulfills it all. We see in Christ what the law all along was requiring of men. In fact, when we see Jesus, we see God in his glory and we see man in perfect righteousness. We see God's self-revelation in the incarnate Son. He is Emmanuel, God with us. But we also see man in obedience to God. Man as we've never seen him otherwise. I've never seen that in myself. I've never seen that in you. You've never seen it in anyone else either. We see it in Jesus. 
This is man as God meant him to be, fully obedient. And then in verse 18, Jesus says, Till heaven and earth pass away, the smallest part, one jot, one tittle, will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. The law is going to continue to be applicable as long as this earth stands. Now, I realize that some people will take this to mean uh, it, uh, it will be applicable until it's fulfilled and then it's no longer applicable. But do you see the tension that that creates in the passage? I did not come to destroy the law, but I came basically to destroy it. Not to destroy it, not to tear it up, but to fulfill it in such a way that it really no longer has any binding application for the people of God. Do you see the, the difficulty there? Jesus says, as long as this earth stands, the law will stand. Not the smallest part will pass away. Now, you may immediately say, but pastor, there are so many things that the law requires that we don't do today and, you, and that you, pastor, don't think we ought to do today. That, that's true. That's true. We talked last week and we'll talk some more tonight and next week as well about some of the continuities and discontinuities. We don't have a temple because we are the temple of God. We do not have a Levitical priesthood because Christians are priests of the living God. We do not have animal sacrifices because the Lamb of God has come and taken away the sin of the world. There are things about the law that have changed. There are ceremonial principles that were given to Israel as a particular nation that are not applicable to all of the nations of earth and they're not appropriate beyond the coming of the Son. And yet, does, does that mean those parts of the law have been destroyed? No. They have been resurrected and transformed in a glorified form, just as Jesus himself was. But Jesus says the law, as a body of teaching, as a revelation from God, as a statement of his authority over all nations, including those outside of the community, as we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 1, that law will stand until heaven and earth pass away. And then verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the old Jewish state that is soon to pass away anyway. Now that's not what your Bible says in verse 19. It says whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. But what do you think about when you hear Jesus refer to the kingdom of heaven? You probably have something in your mind related to the church, don't you? Now, we, we might say, well, the kingdom of heaven and the church, they're not exactly the same thing. They're not exactly coextensive, and that's true. But when you hear Jesus refer to the kingdom of heaven... You are not thinking about something Old Testament, are you? You're thinking about something New Testament. You're not thinking about something that was only going to exist for just a few more years until Jesus returned to the Father's right hand. You're thinking about something that's going to be established at Pentecost and continue in this world until Jesus comes again. And it is in that kingdom, that kingdom of God, that kingdom of heaven, that the one who breaks the least commandment found in the law and the prophets, what did we say that refers to? It refers to your Old Testament. It refers to the Hebrew Bible. The least commandment in the law and the prophets that is broken or taught to be broken by people in the kingdom of heaven, that, that will be disgraceful. That will be shameful. He will be considered the least. But whoever does and teaches these things shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you immediately that whatever the Judaizers were doing that Paul condemns in the book of Galatians, it wasn't that. Whatever the error that was going on in the Hebrew letter that the Hebrews writer is warning the people, don't go back to the law, it's not this. Because Jesus says in the kingdom of heaven, 
until heaven and earth pass away, the law and the prophets and the commandments found in them will continue to be applicable and ought to be obeyed by the people of God. And their obedience to those commands will be a good thing. By the way, verse 20, when he says, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That is an interpretive key for the, next, for the rest of this chapter and really for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Because what does Jesus immediately begin to say? You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And sometimes people have said, well, Jesus here is drawing a distinction between Moses and himself. He's saying, well, this is what was in your Old Testament, but now this is the New Testament regulation. In chapter 6, he says, when you pray, when you give alms, when you fast, don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees, but rather pray and fast and give alms in this way. And then in chapter 7, what is he going to say? Beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. Instead, build your house on the rock by which he means obeying his commandments. He makes it very clear. Whoever hears these commands and keeps them, I will liken him to a man who built his house upon the rock. What's the contrast in the Sermon on the Mount? It's not between Moses and Jesus. It's between Moses' later interpreters. It's between the religious leaders in the Jewish community who have misinterpreted and misapplied and often in times uh, in very hypocritical ways the teaching of the law and the prophets. Jesus is not trying to set aside the law and the prophets. He's not trying to undermine the authority of God's law. He's trying to actually uphold it and return his people to a proper relationship to it. So, last week we began our summary of theonomic ethics, and we looked at the first four on this list of 12. And let me remind you of what those first four were. You might still have this handout if you don't. I forgot to put the extra ones that were left last week back out, but uh, you can pick one up after the class. The first one was this. The scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are, in part and in whole, a verbal revelation from God through human words being infallibly true regarding all that they teach on any subject. Nothing remarkable there. That's just straight up historic orthodoxy. That's just what Christians have always believed about the Bible until they got too smart for their own good. Secondly, since the fall, it has always been unlawful to use the law of God in hopes of establishing one's own personal merit and justification. Salvation comes by way of promise and faith. Commitment to obedience is the lifestyle of faith, a token of gratitude for God's redeeming grace. We are not talking about obeying the law so as to be justified in the sight of God. We are talking about obeying the law as a people who are redeemed by God's grace and obeying him out of faith and gratitude for that preceding mercy. Number three, the word of the Lord is the sole, supreme, and unchallengeable standard for the actions and attitudes of everyone in all areas of life. This word naturally includes God's moral directives, his law. Well, that's pretty fundamental. We said the very first week of this series, how do you know? Right? Every time a moral claim is made, the two questions you need to ask are, why and says who? How do you know? What you, what you, you believe that this is wrong. 
right? It, it, and, and that may be your opposition to abortion. That may be your opposition to lynching people who have a different skin color than you. It might be your opposition to transgender rights. We're having moral claims made about the goodness of transgender rights right now. That's a moral claim. Why? Says who? Ultimately, it has to be grounded in something, not just your preference or mine. And as Christians, we have a revelational epistemology. We know what we know because God has made it known. He's made himself known. He is light, and we are to walk in the light of his word. And then fourth, from last week, our obligation to keep the law of God cannot be judged by any extra-scriptural standard, such as whether its specific requirements are congenial to past traditions or modern feelings and practices. We made a couple of applications of this, but the last one we made was you cannot be embarrassed by anything that the Bible teaches. If, if we're reading the Old Testament, if we're reading the New Testament, and you're wincing and thinking, oh, did you have to read that part of the Bible? I mean, that's, that's going to keep people from becoming a Christian. Well, it's in there, and it's God's Word, and all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for the people of God. You have to believe that. You, you have, to, have to not care what the world says, what the world thinks about God's word. You have to love God's word. You have to love the truth. Buy the truth and sell it not. And if the world decries that as superstitious or traditional or outdated or unjust, you have to be prepared to stand with God's word. So that was what we looked at last week. Tonight, we're going to look at the next four points on this outline and then conclude next week with the last four. Point number five on your outline, and here we come to the new material this evening. We should presume that Old Testament standing laws continue to be morally binding in the New Testament unless they are rescinded or modified by further revelation. This one, I think, should be uncontroversial, but it's actually really important. And, full disclosure, it's one of the primary interpretive differences between Reformed Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists. Do we assume continuity or discontinuity? We all believe that there are both continuity and discontinuity. We know that there are some things from the Old Testament that haven't changed, and there are some things from the Old Testament that have changed. We may not always agree on where those categories, where those lines are to be drawn, but we we believe that both, both exist. The question is, which do you assume as you read your Bible? Now, I grew up in a tradition that assumed discontinuity. By that, I mean that we believed that a command in the Old Testament was no longer applicable to Christians today unless it was repeated in the New Testament. That's what we believed. And so there were all kinds of things in the Old Testament that we thought were still applicable today, but none of them were actually applicable because they were in the Old Testament. They were only applicable because they were in the New Testament. You could remind people that this was first said by Moses or the prophets, but really it didn't matter what Moses and the prophets had said, it only mattered what Jesus and the apostles had said. Now the traditional Reformed view is to assume continuity. And that is because of the four points that we made last week, actually. 
If the Bible is the word of God and is the ultimate and only infallible standard, if the law of God is the, the instrument whereby we are to judge what is right and wrong and good and true and just, well, then we assume that God's law, which is for our good always, continues to be applicable, continues to be binding in the very same way that it was first stated, unless and until God says something to change our understanding of it. Now, when we refer to standing laws, what are we talking about? We're talking about general laws, general instructions that were given to all people rather than just a specific person or a specific group of people in particular circumstances. Now, immediately, some people are going to say, well, but pastor, isn't that the point? The, the law of Moses, as we term it frequently, it was given to a specific people at a specific point in time. Well, that, that, that's true. That's true. It was given to Israel. It was given to the nation of Israel to, uh, to govern them during their time in the promised land. They were to be a theocracy, and there were particular historical circumstances that were applicable to them and not applicable to other nations. That's true. But did you know that Deuteronomy chapter 4 said that the commandments, by which are meant the moral commandments that God gave to Israel, were actually applicable to all of the nations, and that Israel was to be a witness to the nations of that righteousness that God required of them? We'll get into that more next week. But, but, but you see, there are, there are particular circumstances, yes, in Israel that do not necessarily apply to other people at other times and in other places. How do we know what those changes are that have been made? We know them because the New Testament identifies them. But in general, we would say the law that God gave to Israel is a standing law because it wasn't addressed just to a particular person or a particular family or at a very narrow uh, moment in time, it was given to a society. It was given to the church prior to the time of Jesus. Remember, that's how, that's how Stephen refers to Israel in the Old Testament. In Acts chapter 7, in his sermon, he refers to Israel as the church in the wilderness. So Israel's the people of God. And the law that was given to them was to govern them for generations and did govern them for 1,500 years before Jesus came into this world. Those are standing laws, unlike the instructions that God gave to Noah to build an ark for the saving of his household. Unlike the instructions that God gave to Abraham to leave his home and family in Ur of the Chaldees and go out to a land of which I will show you. Unlike the instructions that God gave to Elijah to go... Uh, uh, dwell by the brook Kidron, where I will feed you with ravens during a time of famine, and then later to go uh, find refuge in the home of a widow of Zarephath up in the city of Sidon. Those are particular instructions that God gives. But when the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me, that's not, a, that's not specific to just one group of people at a particular point in time. That's a law that is for all people in all places. How do we know where the discontinuities are? The New Testament identifies them. What are some of those that we see? We see in Ephesians chapter 2, for example, the separation of Jew and Gentile. This is one of the things that the coming of Christ has changed. He's broken down the wall of separation. There's no longer a division between Jew and Gentile, and that's good news for us because I assume that most of you, like me, are Gentiles, right? 
There's no longer any separation. There were entire laws in the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that were designed to draw a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Those laws are ceremonial in nature. They were illustrative. They were symbolic. They were to teach a principle that, yes, would continue to be applicable to God's people in future generations, but is no, those particular regulations are no longer relevant given the tearing down of the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile in the sacrifice of Christ. Secondly, the ceremonial regulations have changed. Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, Therefore, because of the work of Jesus, let no one judge you with regard to food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. In Greek there, it's plural to refer not just to the Sabbath or the Lord's Day or a particular day of rest, but rather to the whole system, to the whole calendar of Sabbaths. Remember that the Old Testament law that God gave to Israel was full of days of rest. They were sprinkled all throughout the year. There were many Sabbaths that sometimes fell on Saturday and sometimes did not, but all of those Sabbaths were part of the ceremonial law that Paul says can no longer be used to judge God's people. Why? Because Jesus has come and fulfilled them. And they are no longer applicable to us in the same way today. The temple and sacrificial system, you see many chapters in the book of Hebrews devoted to this idea that Jesus is the true sacrifice, Jesus is the true temple, and he has sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in you now as the temple of the living God. You don't need a temple in Jerusalem anymore. All of those regulations are noted specifically by the New Testament writers and said to no longer be binding today. That's how you know that there's a discontinuity. Do we assume a law is annulled unless it is restated in the New Testament? Or do we assume the opposite? Do we assume that it is still binding unless it is explicitly annulled or modified in the New Testament? And if it's the former, if you say, no, I don't think any of the Old Testament laws apply to us today unless Jesus or the apostles restate them, reapply them to the church in the New Testament, then let me ask you, how do you feel about bestiality? Now, you can say, I would be opposed to bestiality because the New Testament forbids fornication. That's very good. That's a very good answer. And my question would be, how do you know what fornication is? And whether you know it or not, you know what fornication is because of Leviticus chapters 18, 19, and 20, where fornication is elaborated. It's described and defined. And among those various immoralities that fall into that category are bestiality and homosexuality and incest and a host of other perversions. But you don't have any specific New Testament prohibition on many of those types of perversion. You have some, but not all. And if you say, well, but, but we have this broad umbrella of fornication, again, I say, how do you know what, could, what, what fornication is? Do, do you just know it intuitively? Do you just get to decide what belongs in that category and what does not? And and what happens when you decide to put a particular type of relationship under the category of fornication and someone else comes along and says, no, I don't think that that kind of relationship is unlawful at all. You have that going on in the church today. Some people will say, well, this kind of relationship is unlawful. And other people will say, no, I think that that relationship is perfectly lawful. Well, how, how are you to decide? Well, as it turns out, God has told you in his word 
What is fornication? What types of behavior, what types of relationships are unlawful? And if you're only relying on the New Testament for that information, you are going to find yourself woefully unequipped for some of those conversations. The next point, number six on your outline. In regard to the Old Testament law, the New Covenant surpasses the Old Covenant in glory, power, and finality, thus reinforcing former duties. The New Covenant also supersedes the Old Covenant shadows, thereby changing the application of sacrificial, purity, and separation principles, redefining the people of God and altering the significance of the promised land. Now, honestly, this point could be an entire quarter of studies in a class like this. We could unpack this for weeks and weeks and weeks. But we're going to try and just summarize it very, very briefly. When we talk about theonomy, whatever we associate with that term, We are not talking about trying to resurrect some kind of peculiarly Jewish Christianity. We are not talking about implementing what often goes by the name of Messianic Judaism. I mean, in one sense, we're all Messianic Jews, right, according to the New Testament, right? We're we're all sons of Abraham if we're believers in Jesus. But I think you understand what I mean, right? People who will say, I believe in Jesus. I've been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe everything that the New Testament teaches, but I also worship and conform my life to some of the ceremonial forms that were unique to the Jewish society under the law of Moses. That's, that's not what we're talking about. We fully recognize, or we should, that the new covenant is better in every way. It has better promises. It has a better mediator. It is better in every way. When Jesus comes and fulfills the Old Testament law, he takes the law to the cross and nails it there. He takes it into the tomb with him. We're using language that Paul uses in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2 that we referenced earlier. He takes the law into the tomb with him, and then it is resurrected and glorified in the same way that he himself is. And just as with his body, there are some changes to the law. It has gone through a metamorphosis. You know what hasn't happened? The law hasn't been destroyed. Jesus is not floating around like a ghost. He has a body, but he has a resurrection body. And the law still has a body, but it's been glorified. And it's far more glorious than it ever was before. But notice that the assumption of this point is that the new covenant, in surpassing the old covenant in glory, power, and finality, actually reinforces rather than vacates former responsibilities. This is the fundamental difference in how we interpret Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus says, I did not come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it, do we take him to mean that in fulfilling it, we have set it aside so that it is no more? Or do we take him to mean fulfilling it in the sense of causing it to reach the fullness the beauty, the accomplishment of all that it ever hoped or anticipated so that now the law has not been set aside but reached its maturity? That's the question. That's the question. Is Jesus vacating the responsibilities of the law or is he upholding them? And as long as you're thinking about that, turn over to Romans chapter 3 for just a moment and let me remind you of a passage that you are familiar with, I'm sure. 
But, let me just remind you just in case you're not, in Romans chapter 3, as Paul has concluded his takedown of humanity, consigning all uh, to, to guilt, making sure that we all know that we're under condemnation, right? Whether Jews or Gentiles, we all need Jesus. And then talking about the sacrifice of Christ, the righteousness of God, revealed through faith in the latter part of the chapter, he then asks this question in verse 31 of Romans 3. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. How do you take Jesus' statement in Matthew 5? I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Is he vacating the law? Is he making void the law? Or is he upholding the law? Is he establishing the law? By his fulfillment, is the law reaching maturity and being reinforced? Or is it being finished, the book is shut, and it is put on a shelf as merely a historical document? That's basically what this conversation has to come down to. You have to decide between those two positions. The continuity of God's moral law does not mean that there is no distinction between the Old and the New Testament. In fact, there are many distinctions, and the glory of the New far surpasses anything that ever preceded it. We are not talking about returning to the shadow of Old Testament forms, but rather living in the fullness of Christ's fulfillment of those forms, and that includes upholding the law, which is what Paul says the gospel actually does. The gospel doesn't undermine it. It reinforces it. Number seven on your handout. God's revealed standing laws are a reflection of his immutable moral character and are absolute in the sense of being non-arbitrary, objective, universal, and established in advance of particular circumstances. Thus, they are applicable to general types of moral situations. I've given you a lot of passages there to look at, some of which we looked at over the last two weeks. Two weeks ago when we talked about the Euthyphro Dilemma, we talked about the fact that in a polytheistic system, you really cannot answer the question of what is holiness and where does goodness come from. But the Bible answers that question by saying holiness is defined by the nature and character of the revealed God. God is light. We know goodness by knowing the one who is good. But if the law is that reflection of God's character, then the law has to be unchanging. Because God's character is unchanging. Now, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean particular regulations, particular applications, particular circumstances associated with that law are unchanging. That, that's not what it means, right? We didn't, we didn't have seatbelt laws when everybody was riding horses, right? There are going to be certain... We shouldn't have seatbelt laws now anyway, but I digress. There are certain circumstances of the law that are going to have to be adjusted. But if, but if the law is a reflection and a revelation of God's moral character, you can't have a changing law because God's character does not change. If the law is simply showing us who God is, what God is in his holiness and righteousness, well, then it is, by definition, not arbitrary. It's not capricious. It's objective. It's universal. 
and it has been established without regard to particular circumstances that arise. It's not as if God is now adapting to the situations that we face, as if God is now telling us something that he did not foresee that we would need. And that's why the Bible says, do not add to his word, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Standing laws, again, what we defined uh, a little bit ago in our class, are divine legislations that are general. They're general as opposed to specific. They're addressed to all people as opposed to particular circumstances. And if that is what God's moral law is, then it would have to be, by definition, unchanging. And one more point, point eight on your handout. Christian involvement in politics calls for recognition of God's transcendent, absolute, revealed law as a standard by which to judge all social codes. In some ways, this is going to be the most controversial of the four points that we're looking at tonight, but it doesn't have to be if you understand what we're talking about. What do we mean in terms of politics? Everything good? Yep, okay. In terms of politics, we're talking about that which refers to the city. The polis. The polis is the city. And when we talk about politics, a lot of times we're thinking immediately about, you know, people announcing this afternoon that they're running for president, right? Who's going to be the nominee of each of the parties? How are the major elections going to play out? We're we're thinking in those kinds of terms. But what we're actually talking about here is Christian involvement in the affairs of the city, in the affairs of the state, in the affairs outside of the church. If Christians are going to be involved in the public square, if they're going to be involved in the police, then it is going to be God's law that must be used to judge their involvement there. The question is, is God's law only for Israel and the church, or is it for everyone everywhere? And we've already answered that question by the two passages we read at the beginning of the class tonight. The law is not made for a righteous person. It is made for the unrighteous. The law is not merely for the community of faith, the people of the covenant. It's for everyone everywhere. Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. You've heard that expression before, right? So when we talk about involvement in politics, what we're acknowledging is that we are Christians everywhere we go. And that everywhere we go, God's word is guiding us. God's law is governing us. And God's revelation of his own character is the standard by which we determine what is right and wrong. Again, we could spend a lot of time unpacking this. Let me just point you to a few of the proof texts that I cited there that we won't take time to read tonight. In in 2 Samuel chapter 23, the word of God says that the person who would rule justly over the, the person who would rule over man must be just, right? That, that a ruler is to be just. How do you define justice? How do you determine what is righteousness in a magistrate? How do you decide who the president ought to be? Who our legislature, legislators ought to be? Now, now you say, well, we're electing a president, not a pastor. I, I, I get all of that, right? 
We're, we're always looking at kind of the, the lesser options, right? You know, none of, none of these are ideal. But if a ruler is supposed to be just, if a, if a magistrate is supposed to uphold righteousness, well, how do, you, how do you determine what that looks like? How do you determine what values align with that standard? Proverbs 14 and verse 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Is that just talking about Israel? Well, no, it's talking generally. It's a proverb about everyone. Righteousness exalts a nation. What nation? Every nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. It says so. It's any pe- but how do you know what sin is? How do you know what righteousness is? Do, do you realize the implications of this? Do you understand the implications for our criminal code? Do you understand the implications of this for our economic policies? Do, do you believe that economics is a morally neutral field so that whatever the magistrate chooses to do, whatever the Congress decides, whatever taxes they decide to levy, however they choose to use funds, it, it, it's perfectly fine. It doesn't really matter because it's morally neutral territory. Well, no, I, I don't think any of us believe that. But how are you going to know what is righteousness with regard to the economy, with regard to the laws that we will enforce and how we will enforce them, who we will punish and why? Jeremiah 29 and verse 7 encourages the exiles in Babylon to pray for the good, for the peace, for the welfare of the city, the Babylonians. But what does that look like? How do you pray for the welfare of the nation that you live in? What guide do you have with regard to what goodness and peace and welfare looks like? Romans chapter 13. Look at, look at Romans chapter 13 for just a minute. We won't read all seven verses, and we may come back to this later uh, in another class, but notice there's a, there are great debates about Romans 13. Is this descriptive? Is this prescriptive? How are we to understand this? But just notice what is said without entering into those questions. Verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And Nero was the Roman emperor who ordered the execution of Paul who wrote this. So in doing so, was he exercising God's vengeance and wrath against an evildoer? Was he acting justly or unjustly? Does Romans 13 mean that whatever a magistrate does, he's doing the will of God because he did it? If he decides to execute an apostle for preaching the gospel, well, it's God's wrath against an evildoer. I guess I know how we're supposed to assess Paul's ministry now. Is that what it says? Well, no, of course, that's that's absurd. How do you know? How do you know what righteousness is? How do you know what the good is that the magistrate is supposed to protect and uphold and what the evil is that he's supposed to punish? How do you know? What if the magistrate decides, I don't want to use a sword? I don't think that a sword is a good, or a, a good thing to use. I, I don't think we should punish anyone for anything. Is he doing God's will? The Bible says he's a deacon of wrath. That's what the text says. This minister is a deacon. He's a deacon of wrath to do God's will with regard to justice. How do you know what justice is? The point here 
is that Christian involvement in politics calls for recognition of God's transcendent, absolute, revealed law as a standard by which to judge all social codes. So how are Christians involved in politics, even in this broad sense of the city and the public square? Well, do you pray before elections? Do you pray for your nation? You're involved in politics. Do you vote when elections come around? Then you're involved in politics. Do you pay your taxes? You are involved in politics. Do you have opinions about what the laws ought to be? You are involved in politics. What happens if a Christian runs for an elected office? There are some Christians who think that Christians ought not to do that kind of thing. That's good. That'll ensure that we only have pagans in positions of authority and influence. Great idea. What happens when a Christian runs for elected office or gets appointed to a position of government authority? What happens when the pagan who is in government authority is converted? What is he supposed to do then? There is no neutrality. You either judge righteousness, justice, goodness according to God's law or you're making it up as you go. Right now, we have blasphemy laws. People are afraid uh, of theonomy and theocracy. Oh, you're going to begin punishing people for blasphemy. Okay, well, we could have a conversation about that, but let's talk about that for just a second in terms of the blasphemy laws that we have right now. I'm going to be tactful because we have children in the room, right? We had a, a man recently in the news who was arrested and is being prosecuted to the full extent of the law, not for the assault that he was said to have committed the month prior to his arrest, but rather for desecrating two pride flags at a local business. Isn't that interesting? You could commit assault, and you might or might not get prosecuted. But if you desecrate a pride flag, then... You're going to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Do you know what we call that? We call that blasphemy laws. Something sacred has been profaned. Do you think a pride flag is sacred? Well, it is in the country that you live in. Desecrate one and see what happens. You already have a theocracy. You already have blasphemy laws. The question is, who gets to decide what is holy and what is profane? The question is, who gets to decide what is right and what is wrong? What are the good works the magistrate preserves and the evil that he punishes? And which category does abortion belong in? Can economic practices be evil? Who decides who gets punished? And what is the righteousness that will bless a nation if it is pursued? How can we know? And do the magistrates simply get to make it up as they go so that whatever they say is right is therefore right? Which brings us all the way back to the first class in this little series, right? The Euthyphro dilemma that, you know, put everybody to sleep that night. Is goodness good because the gods say it's good? Or do they say it's good because it is prior, separately, independently of them good. It's a false dilemma. But you live in a world right now where the magistrates 
decide what is good because they said it is. And it is constantly changing. On the back of your handout, I gave you several quotes again. Uh, Just like last week, we haven't read any of them so far. I do want to... I do want to share, let me make sure, I don't want to look past anything that's too, okay. Two, two quotes from um, Dr. Greg Bonson's essay where these 12 points are found. They're at the top half of the page. I'm going to let you read those on your own. Uh, I do want to share with you these two quotes from John Calvin's Institutes. This is from book four, chapter 20, parts 15 and 16. And I, and I do want to say this. I mentioned last week that Some have acknowledged that the Westminster Assembly and the Westminster Confession is basically theonomic. I mean, even some critics of theonomy have admitted that. Others have disputed it. Some have said that Calvin is theonomic in his thinking about ethics. Others have strongly disputed that. Those who dispute that Calvin is theonomic will typically do so by appealing to Institutes, Book 4, Chapter 20, Section 16. I want to be very upfront, transparent about that. There are things that Calvin says in that paragraph that do sound not theonomic. And the whole rest of the chapter sounds profoundly theonomic. And so the question is, how do you understand that? Well, again, one of the things I would say is, remember that we're, we're talking in theonomy about basic categories, basic relationships between God's law and righteousness and justice, not about particular expressions, particular formulations. Calvin may not be consistent with every formulation of theonomy, but he is broadly theonomic. Also, Dr. Greg Bonson has a, a series of 113 lectures going through Uh, Calvin's uh, Institutes, and he deals with that question in some detail uh, in the 112th and 113th uh, lecture, and it's on Sermon Audio. You can listen to it. It's very good. But let me share these two quotes with you, and then we'll finish. In Book 4, Chapter 20, Article 15, he says this, quote, The moral law, then, to begin with it, being contained under two heads, the one of which simply enjoins us to worship God with pure faith and piety, the other to embrace men with sincere affection, is the true and eternal rule of righteousness prescribed to the men of all nations and of all times who would frame their life agreeably to the will of God. Notice what Calvin's saying here. He's saying there are two great commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are also the two tables of the law. The first four relating to the worship of God, the latter six relating to the relationship with man. Everybody tracking with that? And he says, by the way, that's applicable to all nations. Okay, well, immediately we have a little bit of an issue because a lot of people in the Reformed community say the first table of the law, the regulations of worship, are only applicable to the church. But Calvin would say otherwise. He goes on. For his eternal and immutable will is that we are all to worship him and mutually love one another. The ceremonial law of the Jews was a tutelage by which the Lord was pleased to exercise, as it were, the childhood of that people until the fullness of the time should come when he was fully to manifest his wisdom to the world and exhibit the reality of those things which were then adumbrated by figures. The judicial law, this would also be called the civil law, given them as a kind of polity, that means governance, delivered certain forms of equity and justice by which they might live together innocently and quietly. And as that exercise in ceremonies properly pertained to the doctrine of piety, inasmuch as it kept the Jewish church in the worship and religion of God, yet was still distinguishable from piety itself, so the judicial form, 
though it looked only to the best method of preserving that charity which is enjoyed by the eternal law of God, was still something distinct from the precept of love itself. Therefore, as ceremonies might be abrogated without at all interfering with piety, so also when these judicial arrangements are removed, the duties and precepts of charity can still remain perpetual. But if it is true that each nation has been left at liberty to enact the laws which it judges to be beneficial, still these are always to be tested by the rule of charity, so that while they vary in form, they must proceed on the same principle. Those barbarous and savage laws, for instance, which conferred honor on thieves, allowed the promiscuous intercourse of the sexes and other things even fouler and more absurd, I do not think entitled to be considered as laws." since they are not only altogether abhorrent to justice, but to humanity and civilized life. Now, if you got lost in the latter part of that quote, let me just tell you what what Calvin said is, the judicial law God gave to Israel may have changed in certain forms and aspects because it regulated their society at that point in time. But there is within that law a general equity, which is how the Westminster Confession talks about this, a principle of justice. And all laws of all nations have to conform to it. Well, that's basically theonomy. And if somebody says it's not, I would say, well, you're, you're trying to hold Calvin to a standard of a, either a type of theonomy that you've kind of created in your own mind or a specific formulation of theonomy that is not necessarily Calvin's view. But, but this, is, this is all I'm saying, is that the law that God gave to Israel rested upon a moral foundation that is applicable to all people in all places and at all times, and that the judicial law that God gave to Israel is simply a social, civil application of the moral law, and therefore is applicable to all peoples. In the next uh, paragraph, he says this, quote, Now, as it is evident that the law of God, which we call moral, is nothing else than the testimony of natural law, and of that conscience which God has engraved on the minds of men, The whole of this equity of which we now speak is prescribed in it. Hence it alone ought to be the aim, the rule, and the end of all laws. End quote. If you're going to make laws to govern men, they have, they have to conform to God's moral law. Otherwise, they are themselves unlawful. Okay? All right. So that's our study tonight. We've got one more section, four more points and then we'll conclude this. This is a very brief, very introductory. I'm going to give you some reading suggestions if you want to go beyond this uh, after next week's class. Any questions before we close in prayer? Art, I think they're very helpful. There are a number of places where I would disagree with him. Questions about R.J. Rushdooney, who was also an OPC minister in the Presbyterian Northern California and was really uh, uh, kind of opened the door for a lot of Bonson's work. So he was one of the early theonomic thinkers and writers. And I I find him very, very helpful, very stimulating. I would disagree with him on several points and and some of the, either some specific laws and the way that he applies them to the church today or just some of the kind of broader hermeneutical uh, approaches. But overall, I would say that he's very very useful. I, I don't know that I've ever had anybody that I've read that I agree with them on everything. Uh, but he's certainly someone that I've profited from. Yeah, did everybody, was everybody able to hear that? Right. So how, how do you decide which laws are ceremonial and which ones are judicial and which ones are moral? And, you know, because you've got, uh, don't wear a shirt of two different kinds of fabric. 
don't reap the corners of the field, uh, don't trim the edges of your beard, right? And it, obviously, I don't think that one is, you know, applicable today, right? Goatee. Um, but anyway, uh, so here, th- this, this, is, this is the issue, is that uh, even if we accept a broadly theonomic approach to the law, we still have to do the exegetical work of getting into the text and saying, how are we to understand this particular regulation? Because it's not as if any of us has got an Old Testament that is color-coded as to what is ceremonial, what is judicial, what is moral, right? And if my thesis is correct, which is that the judicial law is simply a civil application of the moral law, well, you know, you've, you've really got a challenge here to say, then how does that civil regulation in Israel relate to another society in a, in a modern nation. Um, yes, all of the ones that you just named are generally thought to be ceremonial laws. They're laws of separation. They are laws that distinguish Jews and Gentiles, and therefore they were particular to that society, and they are thought to no longer be binding in the same form upon the church today, although the principle behind them still would be applicable. But this would be uh, you know, and, and so I'm not trying to dodge the question, but, but use the opportunity to emphasize that even if you say, I, I take a, a theonomic view of ethics, okay, that's great, but you've still got to do the hard work of reading Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then figuring out what to do with each part of it. Because nobody in the conversation is saying, we just simply take the book of Deuteronomy and we drop it in place of the U.S. code, right? But that's that's... That's not theonomy, right? Um, how do we get from Scripture to application? And, and it's by doing some hard work and thinking through particular regulations like that. Sometimes those regulations we might judge to no longer be applicable in the same form, but the same basic idea in another form we might judge to be applicable. And, and, and so to say, well, there, there's some historical uniqueness to the, to the expression of this law that needs to be translated a little bit, but, but we still see a way in which that's going to speak to us today. Yeah. Other questions? Albert. What is your views on Meredith Klein's intrusion ethics? Uh, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of it. Yeah. So the question was about Meredith Klein and intrusion ethics. And Meredith Klein, also an OPC minister, right? Everybody in the conversation seems to be from the OPC, right? It's a small denomination that punches above her weight. But um, Meredith Klein um, did a lot of work on the covenant and on covenant theology, and the intrusion ethic was, was an important part of that. I think that Klein's work in this regard um, was, was kind of quasi-dispensational, uh, because of the way that he viewed this in, in kind of a parenthetical way in terms of redemptive history and as some kind of republication of the law uh, or the covenant of works, the law of Moses being a republication of that. Um, and so I don't find that to be, it's not, it's not what I, I think is happening as I'm reading the Old Testament. It doesn't seem to me that, to be the most consistent or the best way of reading that data. At the same time, I think that Klein uh, has made a lot of really helpful observations about sometimes the structure of the covenants, uh, the structure of biblical authority, his work on Deuteronomy, his, his book, The Structure of Biblical Authority. Uh, there's some really useful pieces in there. So it's not just to dismiss wholesale that work. Um, uh, Klein was actually one of the ones who, in a Westminster Theological Journal article, interacting with Bonson, he and Bonson interacted uh, 
uh, actually admitted that he thought that the Westminster Assembly and the Westminster Confession was theonomic in its approach. He just simply disagreed with it. But I think that, that Klein ultimately took a more uh, radical separation between law and gospel that was unhelpful and misunderstood in some key ways the place of the Mosaic administration in terms of the larger scheme of redemption. And that, that affected negatively uh, his, under, his, his view of the relationship of the Mosaic law and, and a Christian ethic. So theocracy would be two other, you know, a combination of two other words, where we basically have God's rule, right? So a monarchy, monarchy is one ruler, right? An oligarchy would be ruled by the few. A democracy would be ruled by the people, the demos, right? Um, and so a theocracy is God ruling. And then theonomy is the idea of God's law. So I see these as two sides of the same coin. I realize that there are people who try to make a, a, a larger distinction between these terms than I would, and they will say, I'm not so much theonomic as I am theocratic. I think to be theonomic is to be theocratic and vice versa. So insofar as some people are trying to draw a distinction there, you know, there may be, there may be helpful things that they've said, uh, Jim Jordan, for example, um, but... I think that they are just two aspects of the same. And I think very often when critics have tried to distinguish theonomy and theocracy, what they're really getting at is that they disagree with Bonson usually or Rush Dooney and some of their specific formulations of theonomy. And yet in, in advocating a type of theocracy, they're still advocating a type of theonomy. It's just it may not be exactly Bonson's theonomy. And, and I would say I would kinda, I'm kind of there. I would say that as much as I appreciate Bonson's work, there are a few places where I would offer some revision. And, uh, and so I'd be very comfortable with the idea of a theocratic approach to civil society. But that presupposes that God's law is at the foundation of it and is defining what justice is. Yeah, okay, thank you for clarifying yeah, where you were going with that. Yeah, yeah, it does. It, so to say that we take a theonomic ethic is not saying that we are trying to go back to the, uh, the precise manifestations or applications of that law as we see in Old Testament Israel. It is in no way, shape, or form suggesting that we should collapse, collapse the difference between the church and the state or set the church over the state in any way, shape, or form to uh, confuse the role of the magistrate and the role of like ecclesiastical leaders, the elders. Um, so yeah, whenever people, I, I should have anticipated that might be where you're going, that was my mistake. Um, theocracy, in a lot of people's minds, is a very pejorative term. Yeah. And, they're, and they're, like, again, they're assuming the worst. Uh, you, want, you want a society that's ruled by the church. That's, that's not what we're saying at all. I think that ultimately God is the Lord of all lords and king of all kings. Jesus is the Lord of all lords and king of all kings. And magistrates have a duty to bow the knee to the Son and acknowledge that there is a ruler over them whom they are to honor in all of their governance. And whether it's in a constitutional republic, whether it's in a monarchy, whether it's in whatever other form of civil government there might be, their duty is to acknowledge the authority of King Jesus and to uphold justice as defined by his law. That's what I mean by theocracy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, very good. Thank you for your patience, participation. I hope this is not terribly boring to you.
uh, aggravating you, provoking you to wrath, anything like that. If it is, you've only got one more week, and then we're going to do something else for the summer. All right?